Hey guys and welcome to the next episode of the Shane Walsh Podcast. So this episode is going to help so, so, so many people and I love this chat. So today's episode is with Isabella Robinson. So Isabella is a registered associate nutritionist. She's certified intuitive eating counsellor and qualified nutritional therapist. She has a special interest in disordered eating and eating disorders and intuitive eating. She's passionate about helping clients rediscover confidence and trusting kind of to nourish their bodies again so they can free up space for what really matters in their lives. So what we talk about is what is intuitive eating? What is healthy eating? And she asks me that question as well. What is healthy eating to me? We talk about is when we say I want to lose weight, what does it actually mean or what are you actually trying to say? That question is going to hit home hard for an awful lot of people. We talk about that one meal or one week of kind of, you will not get a nutrient deficiency from needing a week of potentially not doing what you you are normally doing. We talk about your stomach doesn't have opening or closing times. We talk Mm -hmm. about what the mirror isn't telling you. We also talk about it's important to and it's okay to honor your food cravings. In fact, we actually both encourage it. We talk about self-compassion and one of the main books and kind of people that help us an awful lot to learn about self-compassion so that we work with our clients on. And we talk about one of the big things that happened over Christmas with clients in particular. A lot of people do struggle with it is in relation to dealing with unsolicited weight loss advice from people and how to kind of counteract that. So this episode, I do think you're going to need a pen and paper for this episode. I do think it's one of those episodes that's going to hit home for many. I do think it's going to be one of those episodes that people will revert, we will both revert back to. So I hope you guys enjoy the episode with Isabella. Isabella, how are we? I am very good. Thanks, Shane. Really excited to be here and really excited that it's Friday. Yeah, it's amazing that it's Friday and it looks like freedom is happening too. Uh, so who anyone who isn't aware of yourself, can you kind of give us a little bit of a brief background into yourself, what you do and how you got into this realm? Because it's a, it's a very different avenue for what a lot of people believe, kind of like kind of what intuitive eating is and stuff like that. People get confused between that side of things. Can you kind of explain that a little bit more? Absolutely. And Shane, I should probably give a little disclaimer that I love to talk. So at any point you think, okay, (laughs) we didn't need your life story, you just um, jump in. So my name is Isa and I'm a registered associate nutritionist and nutritional therapist. Um, And I specialize in eating disorders, disordered eating and intuitive eating. And and I'll come on to that a little bit more. And I guess uh, what I will say is that I haven't always had a really healthy relationship with food. In fact, I've had a a very unhealthy and challenging relationship with food in my teens. And I think it was, you know, around the time that you're sort of going through puberty, um, as kind of a young woman growing up around, you know, we didn't have social media, but we did have a lot of kind of fashion magazines. And, you know, I just kind of began to feel very uncomfortable in my body and really looked to food as a means of sort of controlling that and fell into that rabbit hole and off the back of that actually I ended up also coming across the rise of the sort of wellness clean eating scene this was probably in about 2012 so we're talking like the very beginning of of green juice arriving in the UK and I thought this was just the best thing since sliced bread I was like oh my goodness I would like to have a clean eating account as well and I started a social media account and I feel very conflicted about this because you know on one hand I was sort of doing this with the best intentions and on the other hand I was claiming to know about nutrition information when really I knew nothing and I was reading maybe one or two books and then you know giving nutrition advice off the back of that with absolutely zero qualification to my name and I think this just really begins to slightly get under how unregulated and dangerous social media can be as a place to obtain information when it comes to our our health, our well-being, our diet, even things like, you know, our fitness, if we're just following off somebody and what they do versus maybe a kind of personal trainer that really knows about somebody that can help them warm up, cool down, knows about their injuries, what they're up to in their daily life, etc. So just a, a little side gig there. 
And what I began to notice, actually, as I was in this sort of clean eating space is, hang on a sec there's something here that doesn't kind of feel quite right. And this was off the back maybe of attending a couple of sort of wellness blogging events. And I sort of began to put together that the kind of behaviors that I was seeing in the name of health, putting that in quotation marks, were really what I what I sort of was doing and feeling when I was in this really unhealthy relationship with food. Like it was very much based on rules, on anxiety, on cutting things out. It was pretty restrictive. And I was also a student at this time. And I sort of felt like I lived this double life where I was like a health blogger half the day and half the day I was like going out and living a really normal student life. And I was like, hang on a sec, this kind of very rigid, very sort of controlling relationship with food doesn't really feel like it's about health at all. And that's when I fell into intuitive eating and health every size. And I really fell into the literature there on weight inclusive approaches, on kind of really getting under the pseudoscience, on this idea that all foods fit, that we don't need to be bogged down in the nutritional minutiae, I call it, you know, that like every single bite of food is going to impact our health or potentially impact our body weight and shape. And for me, it just really kind of gave a name to what I felt like I was actually doing. Like I felt like I was a really bad fake health blogger that was promoting green juice and then going out and drinking, I don't know, Sambuca shots with my friends in a nightclub. And under intuitive eating, it really felt like I could do all these things. And what it was really about was authentic health and actually taking care of all of these different aspects of my health, not just what I was eating and what I was doing in terms of movement or exercise, but actually how I was thinking, how I was speaking to myself, um, my social health, um, taking out the guilt or anxiety or shame around food because everything got to be there. And also really doing health on my own terms. So rather than somebody else telling me, Izzy, you have to do this to be healthy. Like to be healthy, you have to do yoga. It was like, actually, what do I, what do I know for me is important for my well-being? Um, and Long story short, I then went to train in in kind of nutrition. I did a master's in eating disorders and clinical nutrition. I'm a certified intuitive eating counselor, which means I've done the sort of um, key training by the um, authors that coined intuitive eating. And I work one-on-one with my clients, really helping them to discover their own authentic health and find this sort of balance away from these extremes and be able to define in their own terms what feels good for them, rather than me say to them, here's your nutrition plan, off you go, go follow it. Um, How do you kind of, I know this is a very, very vague question and the answer in nutrition is generally always, it depends. But if someone is so confused and so lost with their emotion regulation or where to go for food or what kind of food is kind of going to be nourishing to them, nourishing for the soul or nourishing to the body, whatever it may mean, how do you kind of kind of get away from or how do you kind of lead someone towards kind of intuitive eating if they're kind of they can be a little bit lost, if you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think you're exactly right there, Shane, on it's going to be so individual. And certainly what I do is when... Um, an individual uh, comes uh, to see me we do a really thorough assessment and one of the first things we look at is what's their intake like and how do we meet them where they're at and so that might really start with a much more structured meal plan that is based on kind of what they're already doing with a few extra things in etc and maybe we work a little bit at first with their psychologist or we work together on some very basic self-care to kind of get into a bit of a routine and then maybe once we've got all of our signals sort of in an equilibrium then we can start to introduce things like discovering our own um, hunger and fullness signals really working to kind of understand what those feel like for us in the body and when it might feel like a good kind of hunger to eat at versus like we've just left it so long and we're so ravenous we just devour the whole fridge and it doesn't even touch the sides then maybe we look at things like rediscovering um, the pleasures of different foods maybe it's things that we haven't allowed ourselves for very long um, that we really want to be able to have permission to eat maybe actually they still feel quite anxiety provoking so we work on actually how can we manage 
um, reintroducing those foods, not because we necessarily need to eat them every single day, but because if you wanted to go out with your mates and have their birthday cake, it doesn't make you feel scared or anxious to do so. And there's no bandwagon, um, bandwagon to fall off, so to speak. So it very much is so dependent on the individual and so dependent on what they would like from our work together. I can't tell someone what their goals are. Um, we very much look at those together and we can absolutely start with something that's more structured and then broaden out. And for somebody else, we might immediately start with um, something that looks a bit more flexible. And I definitely have clients that um, I have on um, more sort of structured meal plans with elements of flexibility and some that are much more into that space of discovering their own hunger and fullness signals as well. I so think the key, sorry, sorry, you, you go. I think the key word that you said there is flexibility because yeah. I think people think nutrition or a diet has to be like a plank of wood and be rigid when in fact it needs to be like waving in the waving in the wind like a flag it needs to be able to kind of be completely flexible absolutely flexibility and the other thing that I love talking about with my clients is cultivating options and choices and so every time we're we're kind of um, working together whether it's kind of food or self-care I'm always talking about let's open up more options and choices, options and choices in terms of where you can eat or what time or certain foods or food groups. And so it's all about kind of adding in and broadening out and opening up space, um, more flexibility, more freedom. Um, and I think that that's something that I just love about intuitive eating. That's brilliant. And you mentioned health at every size kind of early on that in kind of what we were talking about. There's a little bit of confusion what health and every size means. Because I think people mean that if someone is overweight, whether it be their own choice or whatever, and they're happy enough, happy out. But can you kind of clarify what health at every size actually means? Yeah, absolutely. So health at every size was actually um, originally intended to be a social justice movement. And it was really a social justice movement to support individuals in more marginalized bodies to obtain fair and equal access to respect and particularly to healthcare. So um, we know that there's a lot of weight bias, so prejudice to individuals in larger bodies when they seek out medical care. So if you or I, Shane, maybe went to the doctor with a headache, we're potentially not told, you just need to go away and lose weight. Maybe they kind of take a more thorough history, maybe they prescribe us medication, um, maybe they're more respectful. For somebody that's in a larger body, they may be told, you need to go away and lose weight. And it's completely different to the concern that they actually came in with. So that's sort of where Health at Every Size started. And it's really about um, also knowing that we can actually work on our health and um, engage in health-endorsing behaviours, irrespective of our weight and actually what we do know as well from the literature is that it is a hundred percent possible to improve our overall health so I'm talking about markers of health such as maybe it's our blood sugar levels maybe it's something like our cholesterol uh, maybe it's our um, lead, you know lean mass muscle mass percentage independently of losing weight and often when sort of weight is the sort of focus we find that many individuals might become, you know, frustrated and actually stop doing those health endorsing behaviors because they're not seeing the scale go down. So this is the other part that we think about in terms of health at every size, that it is possible to improve our well-being regardless of where we fall on the weight spectrum and improve our health independently of weight loss. Um, and I do think that Health at Every Size has become a little bit misunderstood and also potentially has moved further and further away from how it was intended as this social justice movement. And I think it's really important to make sure that in conversations about Health at Every Size, we are also including individuals who live in larger bodies and are listening to and understanding their experience of um, difficulties in accessing healthcare and also weight stigma that they may come up against because we also know that this weight stigma is very very detrimental to health because in the body it creates this kind of cascade of the stress response and may increase these sorts of inflammatory markers and blood sugar levels that we more typically 
associate with being in a higher weight body, but actually it can just be the stress of walking down the street and that weight stigma that these individuals might experience. I think that's a, a brilliant kind of example and brilliant definition of kind of health at every size. You, a lot of the kind of the questions that I'm going to be kind of asking are kind of from the content and stuff like that. So one of the, the posts that you put up a little while ago was when we say, I want to lose weight, it's kind of trying to figure out what the person or the individual is trying to say. Can you expand on that post? Because I think it's very well written and I think it's important for someone to understand what you mean by that. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm really glad that you you liked that post. And It's a conversation that I have a lot with my clients. And just for a bit of context, when I'm working with my clients, they tend to be, for the most part, sort of females in their kind of 20s. And we often have this conversation around this kind of desire to lose weight. And one of the things that I like to pause with them and ask is a sense of, if we could just pause there and decode that language and peel back the layer, what do you think is under, I want to lose weight? right? Because if you suddenly went off to planet Mars on your own, would you still want to lose weight? What is it about the the weight loss and the association with it? Is it health? Question mark. Maybe. I can't say for somebody. And often what we find, and I often bring up this emotional word wheel that I love and I can send you after, Shane, is that what people are trying to say is, I want to feel content, I want to feel confident. I want to feel validated. I want to feel accepted. Um, I want to feel um, valued. All of these sorts of emotional feelings, so to speak. I don't think that's very good um, terminology in terms of my science, but it's about this emotional experience of perhaps if I lose weight, I will be enough. I will be um, all of these things that I'm, I'm maybe currently not in my body. And I think when we then broaden up that conversation again, we start to see that our culture very much associates slenderness or a certain body type with these things. For example, if you go off and onto social media and you look at maybe some fitness influencers, and I've got absolutely nothing against fitness influencers, but we know that social media is a sort of highlight reel. It's the sense of when you look at that and you see these individuals eating a certain way, exercising a certain way and in a certain body and being healthy and happy and successful and praised online that's what the association is whereas our stereotypes and this is absolutely awful and something that I think is such an important part of my work dismantling these sorts of stereotypes when we look at images in the media of individuals in bigger bodies, often they don't have their heads in the photos, um, they're very dehumanized, and there's this association with perhaps being in a larger body and somehow being greedy or lazy or unproductive, and all of these things that our culture doesn't really sort of favor or praise. And that's a stereotype. We know that we can have individuals in larger bodies that can be super healthy, that can exercise regularly, that can eat really nourishing food. And we can have individuals in smaller bodies that smoke 10 cigarettes a day and eat McDonald's. And so I think we really need to move away from these stereotypes and sometimes getting under that what does weight loss actually mean is really powerful at starting to open up some of these conversations. The last thing that I'd really like to caveat, because it feels really important, is that there are these systems of oppression. And when I talk about that, I mean weight stigma, which means that the genuine experience perhaps of someone in a larger body that does manage to lose weight is they go from these experiences of, of perhaps having the doctor say, you just need to go and weigh and lose weight or somebody perhaps, you know, a family relative saying, oh, should you really be eating that? to actually being praised and feeling that acceptance. So I do think that we need to acknowledge that not everyone is starting out in the exact same position. And for somebody maybe in a quote unquote, you know, smaller body or someone with body privilege where they're not faced with these systems of oppression, maybe doing some of this work, I don't want to say feels easier, but feels different to somebody starting out um in a higher weight body where they do feel those systems of oppression and I hope that I'm explaining that well but I just think it's important to 
acknowledge that we're not all starting out in the same place. I mean, that, I think that is the truth. and I, 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 It's difficult as well. I think there's a, an awful lot of a generational thing as well. Um, I know from potentially talking to like uncles or kind of like friends, parents and stuff like that, they can be a little bit more flippant with comments uh, about people or whatever it may be. I think it is improving a little bit. I think the health system has a long way to go and how they treat. I've literally had, got a phone call with one of my clients there and um she's overweight and they they she has issues with hormones and they refuse to get the test done because they're like it's a weight issue it's like no no we need to get the hormone screen we need to get like the the MOT done to see what's under the hood to get the get things solved and get looked at uh, the, today's friday i think with the next post that you put up i think is definitely for like a, a friday thing or a weekend kind of thing in relation to kind of like if you will not get a nutrient deficiency from one day or one week of not eating so called healthy I think it's important to understand what healthy actually means and can you kind of expand this and why fear mongering is, is rife amongst loads of people. Yeah, absolutely. And Shane, I'm going to start, if it's all right with you, by just turning that question back and ask you, okay, again, I'm going to use quotation marks. What is healthy eating? Like when I say what is healthy eating, what, what would you say that is? Keeping myself regularly full and having regular meals and not starving myself or not restricting myself for the sake of a piece of plastic on the floor. Oh my God. Thank you so much. <laughs> I'm like, that is the best definition I've heard. And I, I posed this question to a group of, I think, 16, 17 year olds when I was speaking in a school last week and, and the answers were very mixed. And I think, oh my goodness, we have got so far away from health. Like I'm like, health is such a loaded term. Sometimes I even use just eating for well-being or normal eating. And it just really kind of gets to me sometimes that what it's become is somehow healthy is dairy-free, gluten-free, fasting. Um, what else might come up in this bubble? Um, Anything free, sin-free. Yeah, sin-free, like cheat days, calorie counting. And then somehow not healthy is, or sort of bad is, some red meat, sugar, regular eating, honoring our hunger, like eating when we feel hungry. It's just kind of, you know, eat, even eating breakfast. It really just um, gets me. Sorry, I just had some calls coming through that I'm trying to say no to. It really gets to me. And I think, can we just get back to basics? What happened to regular meals and snacks to balance our blood sugars, variety, balance, eating for joy? What about social eating? Right. What about actually sitting down with people, colleagues, family, friends and enjoying a meal together? What about eating for joy and pleasure? And I think it's really interesting, actually, that in World War Two, when they were sort of thinking, how do we refeed these populations? They actually had two food committees. They had the Food and Nutrition Board and they had the Food Habits Committee. Now, the Food and Nutrition Board looked at the actual what is in, in the food on our plates? Like there's protein, there's vitamin C, et cetera, et cetera. The Food Habits Committee was how are we thinking and feeling about food? Are we feeling anxious about food? Do we have trust in, you know, our nutrition information? What are our eating habits like? Are we eating on the go? Are we sitting down to eat together? Now, after World War II, that Food Habits Committee got scrapped. So all of the healthy eating information that we have is literally down to what is on our plate. And what I feel like is completely left out of nutrition is how are we thinking and feeling about food? Because to me, that is just as important as the nutrition within the food on our plate. And so then we kind of start to think about when I said that you aren't going to get a nutrition deficiency from one day of kind of not eating healthy is all food is going to contain nutrients. All food is going to provide our body with some protein, um, some carbohydrates, some fats, some vitamins and minerals. And actually, our bodies aren't these sort of like very sensitive, delicate flowers. Like our bodies are strong. Like as human beings, we have endured a lot. And our bodies are resilient. And actually, when we think about even going back, like we ate with the seasons, I imagine that through a lot of winters, our bodies just managed on potatoes. And they were okay. So it is this sense of I am all for thinking about how we can nourish ourselves with kindness, with compassion, with a range of different foods. I'm certainly not anti thinking about getting in our veg and all those sorts of lovely things. 
And also, I think when we start to get into this space where we're literally concerned that we, oh my gosh, haven't had enough of this or grams of that or X, Y, and Z that I'm like, hang on a sec. I think we're going to be okay. And that's maybe where I'm thinking, shall we maybe think about reaching out for some support on that thinking and feeling about food and maybe even that health anxiety and that fear mongering? Because let's be honest, social media and TikTok are like, this food is going to cure you or kill you. And unfortunately, celery juice does not have all the answers. And some Nutella and sticky toffee pudding is not going to be the end. And everything gets to be here. Yeah, I don't like the taste of celery, so I'm skipping <laughs> celery juice. Tastes like pond juice. It It's the texture. I, don't, I just can't. I, I can't pack it. it. Um, but I think it's an important thing. Like health, healthy eating whatever that looks like will look different to every single person. And I think it's important to know what we spoke about previously, which is in relation to, I want to lose weight. It can't be that you're eating to lose weight. It's about nourishing your body first, self-acceptance, understanding and tune with your emotions. If you're someone who struggles with PMS, understanding that it's okay to eat that a little bit more, giving yourself unconditional permission. And that's a hugely important thing, which a lot of people get guilt and shame and they can get opinions from everyone else. And then they, they lose almost the faith in their own opinion and judgment. And then that vicious circle goes around. I'm so happy that you brought that and you just, you just put it so brilliantly. And I think it comes back to what I was saying at the beginning about kind of finding this sensible, authentic health and sort of helping empower individuals that we can kind of, that, you know, gentle nutrition and authentic health is about blending some nutritional science that we take, right? Like some things from the NHS and some, um, I call it medical nutrition therapy. So for example, if someone had PCOS, there's some kind of nutrition tips and tricks that we can try. And with your unique tastes, um, preferences, um, circumstances, budget, how your family's eaten, and we blend those together. And so rather than going to a professional and saying, I just need you to give me a meal plan, you tell me how to eat healthy. And like, I can't tell you how to eat healthy. I've got some things up my sleeve, but I really need to understand you as a 360 degree living, breathing human being, because you might be in a completely different kind of era of the UK with different access to supermarkets and this, that, and the other, and maybe you love this food and et cetera, et cetera. So it's really about that blend and it's discovering that authentic health. And what I love to say to my clients is, by the time we're finished working together, I would really like you to have all of the tools to go away and confidently feed yourself rather than like, oh my gosh, my meal plan is up. What do I do now? Right. It's about helping empower that individual to confidently nourish their body from a place of kindness and respect and intuition um, and thought as well. Yeah, and I think that leads brilliantly into kind of the next question was, and I think this is a, a, I think people are just going to not shake their heads or nod their heads to this, which is your stomach doesn't have opening or closing times. <laughs> and, I th- and I think, I think a lot of people from scaremongering, from media, from everywhere and social media is a great place, but it's also a toxic place for a lot of the information. But the silly rules that we bring up saying that we can't eat at certain times, like six o'clock, we can have carbs, 6.01, we can't have carbs. It's kind of like, it's uh, not really how it works. So can you expand about kind of your stomach doesn't have opening or closing times? Absolutely. And I think this really comes from the whole intermittent fasting hangover. And just to be clear, the majority of research in intermittent fasting is in rats, fruit flies and worms. And when I say this, I say, you do not look like a fruit fly or a rat, okay? So we can't necessarily extrapolate this data to humans. And this is the kind of thing, again, where actually it is going to be more damaging for our health to be panicking about not being able to eat after 6.01 or sitting there all morning feeling really, really hungry and denying what our body is asking for than actually just eating. And you know what? Sometimes I'm like, it is that simple. (laughs) Just just eat in a way that that helps you to take care of you. And then you kind of get this kind of backlash that's like, well, you know, people say this and people say that. And I'm like, okay, well, let's bring it back down to like health. Okay. So personally, I'm very anti-intermittent fasting, but I am really pro-sleep. Sleep is really beneficial for well-being. So if we're prioritizing, let's say our sleep, and we're thinking about eight-ish hours of sleep or 
upwards. And we're thinking about maybe having some time to unwind before bed, maybe have a shower, bath, read, watch some TV, unwind. And we're thinking about maybe having, you know, the time in the morning where you just get dressed, etc. You probably already have an eight to 10 hour fast without even having to think about it. Okay, so let's take it away from this obsession with rules around food and really start making it about health. What about prioritizing our sleep? And that's where we start to kind of change the narrative and think, where is this about health? Like, where is intermittent fasting about health? And where is it just about weight loss and maybe control and those sorts of things? So this is kind of how I'd be shifting the conversation. And then again, if you need to eat outside of that, it's going to be so much more helpful to honor what your body is asking for than to be stuck in these in these rules. Um, so that's kind of where I'd be thinking your, your stomach doesn't have opening and closing times. Your body doesn't judge you and think, oh my God, you're such a bad person. How could you do this? In the same way that our brains do. Our bodies are like, oh my God, this is great. In comes the glucose, in comes the protein. Let's take that amino acid or let's grab that magnesium over there. And it's, it's chilled and it actually doesn't mind if that comes from avocado on toast or if it comes from, I don't know, a pastry, your body just sees the nutrients. Um, and it doesn't really matter if it sees them at 6.01 or it sees them at 5.30. Our bodies are designed biologically to be ready for food um, and to be able to digest that and metabolize that and use it as it needs. I love that because I think I think a lot of people forget that like we are intermittent fasting almost or so are fasting when we're asleep. Exactly. It's like, uh, I, I cannot believe this has been, it's been like repackaged up and then sold back to us in like expensive books and expensive supplements. But let's just bring it back down to health. Oh my God. Let's make sure we're getting those eight hours of sleep and stop getting so entrenched in the food rules. Just another form of restriction being brought in. And that's, restriction won't work and um, we know that from loads and loads of different aspects of having worked with clients one of the things i think a lot of people struggle with or have struggled with over kind of in christmas and kind of i think they uh, struggle with it on a regular basis really but i think christmas was definitely one of those times dealing with kind of like unsolicited advice regarding kind of weight loss how do you kind of what advice would you kind of give to someone that is potentially getting advice, say from parents or aunties or cousins or siblings or whatever it may be? How would you kind of work around that yourself? Yeah, and and thank you for that question. I think this is a, a, a really big one and a challenging one. And I think one of the first thing I would really like to say is to take away a lot of the blame from everyone involved in this and to just consider that we all exist in diet culture. And what I mean by that is we all exist with the dominant narrative being around weight loss is the best thing for health. Weight loss is going to make you more attractive, successful, worthy. Um, we're surrounded by a ideal of beauty that is unrealistic for 95% of us because often that ideal of beauty is photoshopped and edited and um, just genetically completely unobtainable for most people. And there is so much beauty in that diversity. So we all exist in these messages. And I love what Evelyn Triboli, who coined intuitive eating, says about this. She says, diet culture is like water to a fish, okay, stuck in a fishbowl. We can't see it but it is all around us. And I just think that's so profound and in a way slightly chilling. And so one of the first things that I like to think about is let's say um, your great aunt is um, occasionally making really unhelpful and difficult comments around your weight. Maybe they also had a great aunt that made really difficult and challenging comments about their weight. And then maybe that person did. And so we're stuck in these systems. And so one of the first things I like to do is say, let's just pause and move away from blaming anyone or judging anyone because we all exist in this shit together. And then the next thing I'd be thinking about is how can we, now we've kind of 
taken away the blame and we've kind of broadened out the picture, think about how we can best support ourselves. And I would say there's kind of various ways that we can do this. One of the first ways is by just laying down our boundaries. And this is probably the most effective way and at the same time the most difficult to do because it involves actually letting that person know what you need and how they can support you. And the way that I might sort of model this conversation might be, you know, hey, Shane, um, you know, I just really wanted to ask, would I be able to, to ask for your support with something? Hopefully you'd say, well, yeah. And I might say something along the lines of, you know, one of the things that I'm really working on in 22 is my relationship with food and my body. And I'm doing some really hard work and I'm having some support with that. And I would just really love your help. And then again, they say, yeah, and you say, you know, what would be really helpful for me is if we could just not talk about diets, calories, weight, if you could perhaps refrain from making those comments about my body, um, it would just really be so helpful for me in this journey that I'm on. Hopefully then they'll say again, yes, of course, I can absolutely do that. And then crucially, you can ask and how can I remind you if you forget? Because the reality is we all live busy lives and people do forget. And they often don't forget because they don't care or they haven't heard us, but they can just forget because, as I said, dark culture is all around us. And the reality is these things are like knee-jerk reflexes, right? I call them sometimes low-hanging fruit topics of conversation that when we're all sitting around a table and we're not really quite sure what else to talk about, we might say something like, I'm so full or I shouldn't have eaten that. It was so bad because it just feels like the next thing to fill the air with. So how can I remind you if you forget? Maybe you want to have a code word. Maybe you want to have a something where you just clap or you give them a look in the eyes so that they can support you with that. So that's laying down the boundaries. And you could also ask, you know, maybe if you're a, a kind of feeling that it might be uncomfortable to have that conversation, you could ask your partner to have that, you could ask your parent to have that, you could ask another adult you trust to have that with someone else. So that you have those boundaries to protect you and your energy and your relationship with food and self-respect for your body and self-care and all the things that are really important for your health and well-being. The next one is just moving along the conversation. Um, so they might say something like, oh, you know, I've just started this new diet. And you can say, oh, um, remind me again, what are you up to this weekend? Or you might want to have a few key phrases that you can throw out just to move. Oh, you know what? I'd really prefer if we could chat about, you know, what you did when you went out with your mom the other day. So you can just move the conversation um, along as well. And maybe that's by directly saying, I prefer to talk about this or I prefer not to talk about this or just a really casual distraction. And then the last thing you can do, which is also around boundaries, is you can exit or you can think, you know what, right now, it's maybe not the best thing for me to be spending so much time with this person. They're actually just bringing up a lot for me, which is resulting in restriction or binge eating or exercise or critical self-talk. And I just need to put a bit of a pause on this and move away from it. And that very much also ties in with social media and potentially muting people or unfollowing accounts that don't make you feel good about yourself, unfollowing accounts that make you kind of question things and really protecting your energy. And again, I would come back to saying that these sorts of things, these are health behaviors. Like these are truly thinking about our authentic health in the way that like really worrying about, you know, the grams of sugar in a breakfast cereal might not be. I love that because you brought up the word boundaries and I think boundaries is unfortunately it's got a, a negative connotation towards it. I think people think like you see boundaries as kind of almost a selfish act when it's kind of like it's I think it's the other way in that having a boundary is allowing you to be yourself and be your authentic self rather than trying to be something else for someone else. And like, if you have kids, they're going to be look, like if they're at the comments are coming from, say your great aunt at the, at the dinner table and your kids are beside you or whatever. And you're having this conversation, your kids are going to mimic your actions. But if you're sitting there potentially taking this, these comments or this conversation, or it could be just a little slide jobs or feels like slide jobs, should I say, 
the kids will pick up on that as well. And that's how they're going to mimic and how you're going to act. So it's, it, it impacts this generation, impacts the next generation and generation, generation, generation. So it is important to have that kind of that boundary side of things. One of the major things that kind of comes in regularly for ourselves is in relation to the mirror and photos. And you have an amazing post of what the mirror doesn't actually tell you. So if could you talk about how to actually talk to yourself better with what you see and what it's potentially a reflection of or a reflection not of? Yeah, yeah. And what I would also start with is that um, if you're feeling like actually you just need some time from the mirror, you might want to just cover it up for a period of time. Um, you know, there's lots um, maybe for another day on kind of body checking and actually how that can drive up. <laughs> Our um, anxiety and body dissatisfaction. Um, with photos, often I always say, actually, you might want those photos to look back on, but you don't have to look at them immediately. Sometimes it's it can be helpful to give that a bit of space and distance. And of course, a photo is just a static snapshot. It's not reality. It doesn't kind of capture the 3D nature of what's going on either. So again, for, for another day, but just coming back to how we speak to ourselves. Most of us low-key bully ourselves all of the time. And the reality is that I've never ever worked with someone that has said, yes, I would say to somebody else what I say to myself when I look in the mirror. Because we wouldn't. We'd be totally, um, our friend would just be totally shocked. And I think here it's really important to come back to this sense of, of self-compassion. And I'm throwing out big word but actually this is an evidence-based um concept or practice it was coined by Kristen Neff and it's it amazing three, yeah exactly yeah um Shane Shane knows what's what and it has three pillars and I guess these three pillars are around mindful non-judgmental awareness so it may be that you might be standing in front of the mirror and rather than getting into that kind of cassette playing of like you're this and you're that and blah 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 and all the nasty things the brain turns out it's perhaps pausing to say I am noticing right now that I'm standing in front of the mirror and this is a really difficult experience for me. And I'm feeling, um, I'm feeling distressed. I'm feeling overwhelmed. I'm feeling um, really low. And I'm just going to acknowledge what is actually coming up for me in this present moment without judging myself, without getting too stuck into that cassette tape that's playing. I'm just going to notice that what's coming up for me right now is a difficult experience. The next element is self-kindness. So if I was speaking to somebody that I really, really care about and they were telling me what I'm bringing up right now, like they were saying, oh my goodness, is there I was standing in front of the mirror and this kind of voice in my head was saying this, that and the other and it was just feeling really difficult and overwhelming. What would I say to them? Okay, let's just take a deep breath. This is a really hard experience for you to be going through right now. You know what? It can be really hard as a human being to live in a body sometimes. Bodies do weird and wonderful things. And sometimes that can be really difficult or painful. It also really sucks that we live in a culture that tells us that we have to look like this in order to be attractive, successful, valued, accepted. And that's sometimes a load of BS. What would help you to take care of yourself right now? What do you need? Do you need to just take a minute outside? Could you call a friend? Um, do you need a distraction? Do you need to maybe do something that helps you to take care of your body? Maybe it's kind of breathing, being in your body, some yoga. Um, maybe it's calling somebody. Maybe it's booking a therapy session. How can you offer yourself some kindness right now? And then the third bit is this sense of common humanity. And what common humanity is is this sense again of we're all in this together and you are probably not going to be the first person to stand in the mirror and find that a painful and difficult experience and you will most certainly not be the last and this sense of you are not alone and that as part of being a human being there are these range of emotions and difficult experiences that we stumble up on um and and kind of feeling that sense of togetherness and i think community is such a powerful part of recovering our relationship to food or working on body image because it can really give us that sense of how many people might be feeling exactly as we are 
even the people, and crucially, likely the people, that appear to have it all figured out if you were to look at their social media feed. I think one of the things you said there was the the importance of, like, would you be happy if someone else spoke to yourself? And I think one of the things that we and the team kind of talk about is would if if someone has kids like would you be happy if your kid was speaking to themselves the way you're speaking right now bring back the inner child and then that almost like then the the brakes go on pretty hard and you're kind of like no i would be pretty i would almost be teary or be i'd be sad it's kind of like well why are you different and then make them look but like if anyone's looking for a book get self-compassion by christian f like it's it's one of the best books uh out there and one of the best finds of lockdown um and definitely give her a follow on on instagram um it's an incredible book and the last question i'm going to ask is in relation to food cravings because i think this is one of these things there's an awful lot of kind of guilt and shame push towards it when there's zero need to have any of it um in relation to it's okay to honor your food cravings in fact we both encourage it but i'm gonna let you expand because your post and i think as well there's nuance in that right because it might be that um you want to work with someone on some of these food cravings um that you're experiencing and you know you don't have to go full helm all at once so there is there is nuance in all of these topics. And I guess what I kind of come back to when we talk about food cravings is one of the principles of um, intuitive eating, which is make peace with food. And this is not a, um, I suppose, a, a nutritional kind of process, right? Because what we're thinking about in make peace with food is that all foods are morally equivalent. So I'm not trying to say that a piece of broccoli and a cookie are going to give you the exact same nutrition. But what I'm saying is whether you choose to eat broccoli or you choose to eat a cookie, you are no better or worse as a person. So this is a psychological process. And what we kind of find with um, make peace with food is as we start to honor our cravings and kind of give ourselves unconditional permission to enjoy these foods as part of a varied balanced diet with enough food crucially right enough food around the side of those um of that food that you're craving because if you haven't eaten all day and then you have a cookie i can just tell you you're not going to be able to stop at one but it's this sense of that the power that this food holds over you starts to diminish and i find the science on this really really fascinating and what they kind of show is that when we put foods on a pedestal and we say you're not allowed that food we start to create a lot of charge around it and we can use the example of adam and eve in the garden of eden right like would eve have gone for that apple if she hadn't been told she wasn't allowed it like would it have been so exciting and mysterious and alluring um there's also a really interesting study that was done on kids where kids were given access to m&ms right they were given access to they said you guys can have as many m&ms as you want just don't eat the red ones and guess which m&ms these kids went absolutely bonkers over right the ones they weren't allowed so it's this sense that as we start to give ourselves permission to have this food and to kind of try it regularly again when we've got when we're well nourished and when we can have that as part of meals or snacks and really kind of taste it then we start to we start to kind of diminish those cravings the food starts to be less exciting and it starts to just be the food and what happens there is a process called habituation Okay. And the way that I like to explain habituation is through a metaphor that, by the way, is not mine. It's from Evelyn Triboli. So she's the queen of intuitive eating. And I've just learned what I know mainly through her. And it's a sense of imagine the first time that you say, I love you to somebody, right? Like the first time you drop the album and it's like, oh my God, you just said, I love you. Like it's huge. You call your friends the next day and you're like, oh my God dropped the album last night this is big but then imagine that you've been in this relationship for quite a long time or whatever and, and it goes on and you're like oh say okay see you later love you bye and you just kind of willy nilly use that word and it has less effect and less meaning and less power as it did that first time you had it and this is exactly the same as habituation the first time you allow yourself that chocolate fudge cake with ice cream it's like I love you. But if you truly know that you can have that chocolate fudge cake with ice cream every day, a couple of times a week, or whenever it is that you want it, 
And around that, you've got kind of meals and snacks and different foods and food groups. So you're not starving and feeling deprived. It's just going to be like, love you. Bye. Let me move on with my life and I can take it or leave it. And so that's sort of why I really encourage and support clients to move through that process of making peace with food and honoring cravings. And what's also really interesting, um, Shane, is that I have clients that like get so geared up to have this food that they've denied themselves and they like sit down to have it. And they were like, that was actually really disappointing. I actually don't really like this. What I really love is something else. And that doesn't happen every time. And what I'm really mindful of is I don't want people to think when they finally give themselves permission to have ice cream, they might not like it. You likely will. Ice cream is delicious. And you might find that when you're really tuned into your taste buds and things, rather than it being this like forbidden, alluring apple, that actually you find that you love things you didn't know you liked or you don't like things so much that, you really thought you loved and again it opens ourselves up to really discover new things about food and have different preferences and um yeah honor our our taste buds and our health in again that really nice balanced and containing way i love that um i the, the adam and eve analogy is a is a very powerful analogy and one of the things that we kind of say to our clients is you're a much nicer person with chocolate in your life <laughs> and carbs 100 percent. yeah no carbs equals hangry right we're not having serotonin and we're not having melatonin if we're not eating enough carbs so you're underslept and you're lowering your mood so please get those carbohydrates and i'm a big advocate yeah massively uh isabel i cannot thank you enough for there's so much in that i think people are going to have to listen back to that maybe twice or two or three times in order to kind of get the full impact on it so where can people find out about yourself on social media? Where can people work with you? Um, and where can, yeah, where can everyone find you? Yeah, thanks so much, Shane. I've absolutely loved this conversation. I haven't done a podcast in so long and I just love, I love discussing these topics and I'm sure we could do it all day. But if people want to find out a little bit more, you can find me on Instagram. I'm at Isa, I-S-A, Robinson underscore nutrition. Um, I also have a podcast myself called the 50 Shades of Food and Nutrition podcast, where we look at the 50 shades of gray and the nuance when it comes to food and nutrition rather than it all being black and white. I also have some blogs on my website, isarobinson.co.uk. And if you'd like to work with me, then you can email me at isa at isarobinsonnutrition.co.uk, where I would absolutely love to hear from you. Amazing. Thank you so much for coming on, guys. And if you want to work with Isabella, please do pop her a DM or pop her an email, as she said, listen to the podcast. Because if you've learned anything from today, there's a lot more to learn from the approach and the, the kind of the, the intuitive eating movement that is uh, that needs to be kind of promoted as intuitive to everyone. So thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, Shane. Have a great weekend. Thank you.